1: I think the brain is totally different than anything we know from the computer world. I mean, the artificial intelligence is not intelligent by definition, because all artificial intelligence does is correlations, statistics, mathematics, and the brain has other tricks in order to organize information, if you want. And the brain is not, like, calculating statistics like a computer does, because the brain thinks in concepts, thinks in, in categories, and this is something you cannot map in artificial intelligence. Intelligence right now.
2: German neuroscientist and author, Henning Beck. Hello and welcome to Future Tense, I'm Anthony Funnell. Dr Beck argues a better understanding of the way our brain works could allay some of the fears we have about artificial intelligence. And it's time, he says, to stop talking down the capacity of the human mind. He'll join us a little later in the show.
1: You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, Exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting
2: the future. But first, to Dr Katie Cook, a psychologist based in Southern California and the founder of the non-profit organisation the Centre for Technology Awareness. Dr Cook has been looking specifically at the psychology of Silicon Valley. In fact, that's the name of her new book. If we're to understand where technology is likely to take us in the future, she says we need to comprehend not just the way technologists think, but also the social, cultural and economic influences that affect their sense of who they are. Silicon Valley likes the idea that it sprang from the counterculture movement of the 1960s, but its sense of its own exceptionalism involves much more than that.
0: So the industry is shaped, I think, psychologically by a lot of things. One of those things is exactly what you mentioned, the counterculture of the 60s, which is huge. And another of those things is this kind of mythology that dates back to some historical facts of the region that are specific to the region of the Bay Area. And some of those things are the gold rush of the mid-1800s. And you have the railway fortunes, I think, of the early 20th century. You know, the port of San Francisco was the biggest port on the West Coast for a really long time and therefore a huge trading port. And you have the dot-com boom, obviously, of the 90s. And I think all of these successes kind of contribute to this mythology that the Bay Area is not only a land of opportunity, it's also kind of a land of innovation. It's a land of risk-taking, it's a land of entrepreneurialism that dates back pretty far. And you can see, I think, pretty clearly how this mythology sort of weaves itself and inserts itself into the modern kind of understanding of Silicon Valley and, and what it is people in the Bay Area, particularly endemic in the tech industry, are very invested in this idea that something very special is going on there. And I think to a large degree, they think that because it's true. There are a lot of very, very amazing products, services, ideas, you know, biotech has a really strong home there, health services, there's a lot of really exceptional things about the Bay Area, both historically, and in terms of its kind of modern production and and contributions. But there's a danger, I think to that as well and that you can get a little bit too invested in the idea that you can solve any problem with the tools that you have at hand. And in the case of Silicon Valley, those tools tend to be technical in nature.
2: Could I get you to explain to us who William Cannon and Dallas Perry were and how they how their work impacted on the psychology of the tech industry?
0: In the 1960s, computer programming was becoming a thing. The industry was starting to boom. There was a need for a huge number of programmers, and no one knew what skill sets these people needed and who would be best to fill these positions. So there were two researchers called Dallas Perry and William Cannon, and they were hired to essentially kind of profile the skills that would be needed and then define the type of person who would be best suited to be a computer programmer. And they came up with two recommendations after all that work. The first was that engineers needed to like puzzles. That was the first recommendation. And the second was that engineers needed not to like people. So you have this idea that computer programmers are antisocial puzzle lovers. And keep in mind, this was back in 1966. So while I would argue, and I think a lot of people would argue that this wasn't true then and it isn't true now, it's an idea that got kind of added to the collective psychology of the tech industry and to this repository of this idea of what makes a good computer programmer. And
2: we do hear hear this all the time, don't we? It's become almost common sense Mm -hmm. that technology people are interested in solving puzzles. They're not people people.
0: Yeah, exactly that. It's embedded in these hiring practices and it kind of, you know, not only informs the demographics of the industry, it also has this kind of homogenizing effect on the diversity in these companies.
2: Does it become a justification as well for some of the the less social aspects of Silicon Valley? Do technologists fall back on this to say, look, this isn't our responsibility to wonder how people use technology, how they're affected by technology. We're really just about solving problems.
0: I think in a lot of cases, it does. A lot of people that I talked to, you know, didn't go to school and study engineering to have to be in the face of these huge social problems and be the ones who are responsible for solving them. And, you know, it's a new idea, I think, in the same way that you didn't always have standards of care for doctors. You know, it makes sense that as industries are newer, you don't always have these standards at the outset. And I think, It will definitely affect education moving forward, and it will probably affect the types of people who go into these roles as well.
2: Does it blind them to the idea that solutions might come from elsewhere?
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's part of a larger problem, I think, really, Anthony, it's increasingly difficult for a lot of us, I believe, to acknowledge that we don't have the best solution. And there's almost this phenomenon where we seem kind of like offended by different viewpoints and really reluctant to admit that we could stand to learn something from someone else, which is bizarre to me. But the industry, I think the tech industry is particularly kind of guilty of this I interviewed hundreds of people for my book, and this was one of the most common themes, I think, that came up really again and again and again. And this is from people in the industry, outside of the industry, psychologists who treated people in the industry, this kind of idea that tech knows best and that they can fix everything, they don't need help. But I think when problems are as complex as they currently are, it's really important to realize that we need different types of thinking. We really need each other. You know, you can't hope to balance technological progress with social progress when you're relying on engineers and founders who are hired to create solutions that are technological in nature. You need people who are thinking in a different way about those problems in a more ethical or, you know, social way.
2: Which brings us to the idea of emotional intelligence, which you deal with a lot in your book. And you write that a lack of emotional intelligence is at the heart of the vast majority of Silicon Valley's problems. Could I get you to unpack that for us?
0: Sure. It's difficult because there is no one definition of emotional intelligence. I really like Daniel Goleman's definition, and that's the definition I use in the book. And in that, he outlines five core skill sets that emotionally intelligent people tend to have. And so those are self-awareness, Emotional control, social skills, self motivation, and empathy. So, in the book, I argue that basically it stands to reason. That if the industry as a whole had more emotional intelligence, particularly among the leadership in big tech, I think that's a key point, that there would by default be a corresponding improvement in the tech industry's values and then by extension, more ethical behavior. For example, if there was a CEO, we won't name him, but if there was one, and he was truly aware of the, you know, really kind of horrendous socioeconomic impacts that his company was having or the social impacts or the impacts on democracy If he was aware of those, and he was empathetic, if he was able to demonstrate a high degree of empathy, and he had the social skills to communicate about that issue, and he had, you know, emotional control not to lash out or react or go on a Twitter rampage, it's really highly likely that the values of that organization would start to shift. And I don't think emotional intelligence is the only thing we need to create more ethical technology, but I think it would go a long, long way towards improving the technology that comes out of these companies.
2: And you argue, don't you, that there's a confusion in Silicon Valley about ethics and values, what the two of them actually mean.
0: I think we don't think about what they entail and we also conflate them to mean the same thing. So to my mind, and I've spoken to a number of philosophers kind of about this topic, ethics tend to be systems or frameworks. So when we talk about fixing tack and setting up ethical frameworks, those are centered around kind of sets of principles and ideas, right? So ethics, you can have a singular ethic, you can have a work ethic, but ethics tend to be frameworks. And values by comparison are individual and they're a measurement of what we think is worthwhile. So To my mind, at least, values come before ethics. And before we can set up these frameworks that we want to set up, we need to figure out what we actually consider important. Those are huge questions. And I think they're fundamental questions that we have to answer as a global community, as individuals because I think a lot of times the answer is we don't really know and we haven't really thought about it. And you see this in tech a lot. The original values of the industry have been you know, either abandoned, maybe corrupted by some new values that aren't quite so good. And there's just kind of this desert of ethics left in its place. But I think a conversation around values would go a long way towards improving this technology that we're trying to create.
2: And you're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell, and our guest is Katie Cook, author of The Psychology of Silicon Valley. Katie Cook, you point out in your book that an increasing number of employees in tech firms are speaking out and starting to question the practices of Silicon Valley. Are there enough of them and are they being heard by the right people?
0: That is a great question. I don't know. I'm happy there's any of them. I think it's incredibly brave to come forward about the issues that they have in those, as you know, range from like sexual harassment to union busting and working conditions and all these things that have made their lives and their working conditions very difficult. And for the people who have come forward, journalists have done a great job in communicating that and those stories to the public particularly in the last maybe two, three years, I think we've just learned so much about what goes on internally at some of these companies and some of the things that employees really have to endure there. When you say, are they being heard by the right people? I think it's kind of a progression, right? And where it becomes difficult, I think, is the translation of these voices and these stories into legislative action and a clear kind of understanding of what's needed. So we know what's going on. We have the stories now, thankfully. And in the U.S. in particular, it, it's been a bit slow. Our cultural attitude towards government and regulation is a bit different to places like Europe. So, for instance, I lived in London when GDPR was released. And it was there was just it's a lot faster there in some ways. And so I think it points again to this need for you know collaboration amongst former employees, journalists, lawmakers, people like me collaborating and trying to get a recognition of what we need.
2: Now, you mentioned the GDPR there, Europe's General Data Protection Regulation. In 2020, California is due to implement comprehensive data privacy laws modelled on the GDPR. What impact is that likely to have, do you think, given that, as you say, there is this different culture with regard to regulation and data?
0: The Internet Association, which is the lobbying body that represents big tech, lobbied really hard against the California Consumer Privacy Act. So to my mind, this is a huge step just for that reason in the right direction, because it's not just a law. It's also kind of a value setting exercise, I think, and California is quite good about implementing these kind of forward thinking laws that then tend to eventually roll out either at a federal or state level. But I heard um, Cory Doctorow make a really good point recently on Future Tense that it could be difficult for smaller companies to ensure compliance with the California Consumer Privacy Act. It's a smart thing to be concerned about because GDPR was just years and years in the making. The new California law was really quickly adopted by comparison. I think GDPR took five or six years to be implemented. The new California law will be 18 months by comparison. But there's some pretty strong thresholds that I like in the California law. They are pretty substantial. So you obviously have to be doing business there. You have to collect user data. You have to be a for-profit company. But you also need revenue over $25 million. Or you need to have collected data on 50,000 people. Or you have to earn half your revenue from selling that data. So I think there's sometimes a misplaced fear that we could put some mom and pop shops out of business. But... In all likelihood, if you fall into one of these categories and you're collecting or selling consumer information, it's probably a good idea if if you're following this law.
2: We have seen some companies fined for their practices, practices that are are deemed to be non-competitive or not compliant with existing legislation, say in Europe. But you point to the fact that the scale of penalties doesn't actually match the size of the misdemeanour, that the fines don't actually provide an adequate deterrent
0: You know, historically, the fines have really been minuscule. And that's because in a lot of cases, legally, the things that these bodies and these agencies have to work with only allow up to a certain amount in a lot of cases for settlements or for fines. But if you take even something bigger and more recent, the $5 billion fine that the FTC levied against Facebook like that sounds big and it is it's the biggest fine that the US government has ever levied against a tech company but it sounds big and at the same time you know it's it's not going to change any behaviors you know it's really telling what happened in the days following the settlement the the company's stock prices, Facebook stock prices actually went way up and so shareholders were obviously super relieved Mark Zuckerberg's net worth increased a lot that day. the fine amounts to about a month's worth of revenue for Facebook. But the targeted advertising, which is what they rely on, doesn't have to change. So they can afford to lose a month of revenue every, you know, few years. This won't happen all the time. And that's why I think a lot of people have really called even a $5 billion fine a slap on the wrist.
2: You end your book on an optimistic note that it is completely reasonable, to use your words, to chart a new course and steer the tech industry in a more socially conscious direction. What gives you cause for that level of optimism?
0: I think in a way we're kind of exactly where we need to be. These organizations haven't been around in the grand scheme of things that long. They're fairly recent creations when you kind of think about it. And in less than a decade of you know, at least public use, Facebook, you know, we've recognized some of the issues that come along with with that platform and with some other technology like Twitter and Google. And I would throw this back to my therapy training a decade ago. Admitting you have a problem, which we've done, is the first step. We know that we have some things we need to work on, and that's really, really important. And I think we're largely all on the same page now. And the next natural step, which is awesome because it's exactly what we're doing, is trying to understand it. So we're coming to understand that, you know, our economic systems elevate organizations rather than human beings, and tech is one of the most obvious examples of that. What we really need to do is elevate our conception of social progress such that it's really tightly bound to the notion of technological progress, to the degree that you can't have technological progress without adherent social progress. So there's certainly cause for concern. I think, you know, humans are amazing and adapting. It's what we're best at. And there's no reason to think that we can't do it.
2: Dr. Katie Cook, author of The Psychology of Silicon Valley. Thank you very much for talking with us.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
2: And Dr. Cook's book will be available as an open access publication from October. If you're interested, there's a link to her website on our website. Just search the words Future Tense and RN. Now to neuroscientist Henning Beck. Dr Beck believes we need to be careful about how we see the notion of intelligence. Our understanding of the power of AI, he argues, is often based on a misunderstanding of the way artificial intelligence actually works and also the functioning of the human mind.
1: I think the brain is totally different than anything we know from the computer world. I mean, the artificial intelligence is not intelligent by definition, because all artificial intelligence does is correlations, statistics, mathematics, and the brain has other tricks in order to organize information, if you want. And the brain is not like calculating statistics like a computer does, because the brain thinks in concepts, thinks in, in categories, and this is something you cannot map in artificial intelligence right now. So the brain is not a biological computer that organizes information and calculates output, because the way we think, how the brain works, how all these neurons are active, that is what we think. And this is totally different from anything we know from the computer world.
2: So the suggestions that we hear quite often, that artificial intelligence will overtake human thinking in the future, they're not correct. You don't see that occurring.
1: No, I don't see that because we don't have the techniques for that. I mean, uh, if we would have techniques to copy the brain and all the brain power in a digital environment, I would say yes, but we don't have that. All we have is correlation procedures, statistics, but this does not mean that these systems can also plan, that they can also imagine, that they can extract the meaning of things. Because learning, for instance, machine learning is great and you can analyze a whole bunch of data and find patterns, but learning is nothing special. I mean, learning means that you find the rules, that you follow the patterns, but it does not mean that you understand stuff. And we can do that. We can understand the meaning and we can do planning out of that understanding. And interestingly, intelligence does not mean that you change the world because intelligence by definition means that you follow the rules The mathematics as fast as possible without mistakes. Intelligence does not mean that you break the rules, that you go places where nobody has been before, that you change things, that you question yourself. No IQ test has the task, invent an IQ test for your neighbor. It's always find the pattern as fast as possible and don't do any mistakes. And I mean, this is the end of the road because efficiency is and perfectionism is the end of progress because If everything is perfect, where should you proceed to? So the human brain is different. It does mistakes, it questions itself, and thereby it is changing the world. Intelligent people don't change the world. They follow the rules. That's it.
2: So is our misunderstanding in this regard with artificial intelligence and the human mind, is it actually a misunderstanding, as you say, of what we mean by intelligence and how actually the human
1: mind works? Yeah, in a way, this is correct, because intelligence is not everything in our mind, because we we have other capacities we can imagine we are creative we have empathy we can think into different directions we can put ourselves into the other's shoes so intelligence is only a part of our abilities and i would not overemphasize that because if you do overemphasize intelligence you would end up with a perfect machine that is basically following the rules but it's not able to break the rules i'll give you a short example no human being will ever beat the best chess program anymore. This ship has sailed. Chess is ruled by machines. But I can do something else. I can invent a new chess. I can invent a new chess piece or a new rule to play chess. And then I give it a try. I try it. I I take some guys and we, we, we give it a shot. And this is not able to be done by machines because a machine does not understand the meaning of playing chess. It is just extracting the rules and following the rules. This is great in a perfect world, but it's not good when you have to behave adaptively, when you have to change stuff.
2: Is it possible that machine learning, artificial intelligence in the future will be able to do what we as humans can do in that sense?
1: There is no, let's say, philosophical border that we could not cross theoretically in order to build a human mind like machine. I mean, this is theoretically is possible. Interestingly, consciousness is not a problem in this regard because we can also imagine machines that are super smart without being conscious. But I don't see the technique right now. All we know from machine learning is that applying that technique is great if you have a lot of data and when you can analyze that data in a very static environment. But you know from your daily life, for instance, that the greatest problems or the most important problems in your life are not big data, they are small data problem. When you want to marry, when you want to buy a house, you cannot buy 1,000 or 20,000 houses to extract the best of buying a house. So um, this small data problem, this one-shot learning, this is a great problem machines have to solve. In principle, it's possible. I'm curious whether it's going to happen in the next decades. I'm not so confident. But in principle, I don't know what's going on in 200 or 300 years. Yeah.
2: There is a brittleness as well to artificial intelligence, isn't there, that uh, doesn't exist in the human mind. I mean, a small mistake in code, for instance, can actually just stop that artificial intelligence from working correctly or can actually steer it off in a different way. So it's, it's very rigid in a way that the human mind isn't, isn't it?
1: This is correct. For instance, if you analyze machines that play games, whether it's chess or Go or poker or whatever, they are perfectly fitted to that game and nothing else. They don't understand the meaning of playing chess. So if you have a little change... In the rules to play this game, the whole machine breaks down and the whole algorithm struggles. So there is no broad or general intelligence that is able to play games after like one or two tries. It needs to play this game like millions of times against itself and thereby extracting patterns. And if you change a little thing, the whole machine is screwed.
2: Now, we often hear people, particularly when we're talking about artificial intelligence and technology, talking down the human mind, talking about its faults and its flaws. One of the interesting things in your writing and the and the uh, presentations you make is that you call on people to actually celebrate those flaws. <laughs> uh, you talk about them as being an essential part of the way we think and who we are. Can I get you to unpack that for us?
1: Yeah, interesting. I'm not calling for errors and mistakes all the time. You know, not every mistake is a good thing, but consider the alternative. If we would not take the courage to do mistakes, we would just be perfectly and efficiently thinking, but would not change the world. For instance, if you want to build a car, you have to follow the rules. You have to build a perfect car without, without a mistake. If you want to drive a car, you have to follow the traffic rules, no mistakes allowed. But if you want to invent a new car, the mobility of the future or whatever, you have to think into directions nobody has ever done before. And in this regard, it is better to think than to think perfectly. And mistakes are like the inbuilt principle of our thinking that the brain is not Perfect in the regard that it follows the rules and efficiencies uh, around us, but it's always creating new new possibilities. It gives a try and then checks out by feedback whether it's working or not. And this is a very good strategy in a changing world. This is evolution, right? And by doing so, the brain is very adaptive and can come up with new ideas.
2: Why do you think we worry about flaws in the, the human mind,
1: the way we think? I think the business world and the daily life around us is built upon the idea that mistakes are bad in general and that we have to think perfectly and without mistakes all the time because we don't want to do mistakes. On the other hand, if you analyze the most creative and innovative companies or societies or something like that, it's always the case that the people in there dare to do something new. They try to do new stuff. And this means that sometimes you have to do a mistake. You have to learn from a failure. And if you want to avoid every kind of mistake and failure, it is very hard to push the frontier to do something new. And we only crossed the oceans. We discovered new countries and get good ideas because we question ourselves and we challenge our opinions. And to do that always means that you, you take the courage to do a mistake. But this is inevitable if you want to create new stuff.
2: Now, you also talk about the need for reflection, don't you, and the need to embrace distraction at times, that it's, it's not always a bad thing.
1: Well, if you are in a concentration mode and have to deliver something on a deadline, of course, distraction is a bad thing. And we are living in times where it is so easy to be distracted by mobile phones or emails coming in or or YouTube videos. But again, the brain, the basic principle of the brain is not to be concentrated all the time, to be in the zone focused all the time, because sometimes you have to think outside the box. Sometimes you have to to check whether there are other possibilities. And this is why the brain has some kind of inbuilt filter mechanism that filters out a lot of stuff around you. But sometimes sometimes it's interesting to get distracted. Sometimes you get a new perspective. Why not? And I'm not calling for being distracted all the time, but embracing that distraction time, taking breaks, doing something else, not focusing all the time, but use the power of distraction in order to get a new perspective. This is the difference between distraction and um, getting inspired. And inspiration only comes when you have a slight mode of distraction.
2: Well, Henning Beck, author of Scatterbrain, How the Mind's Mistakes Make Humans Creative, Innovative and Successful. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Great. was a pleasure.
2: Now, next week on Future Tense, we'll meet an architect who thinks the future of the Olympics should involve floating hotels and even floating stadiums.
1: In Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we've all already been active with that, designing these kind of structures. And technical is absolutely not the problem. It's more where do you place them, how long do they stay there, who is owning them, what kind of rules and regulations are applicable on that? And we always say, if you want to build floating structures in your city, it's about the location. Eh? What kind of water do you have? Is it deep enough? Is there an, uh, what kind of flow? Is there what kind of extreme weather you we can expect? What kind of technology you have to build? And then it's about the rules and regulations. Does your city or your government allow these floating structures to be moved into your city? Do they see it as real estate or do they see it as boats? Well, and that's a kind of area where we do a lot of consultancy, where we bring our technology and ideas that have been done here in Holland to governments all around the world for them to start making use of the water.
2: That's ocean-going infrastructure and ocean architecture next on Future Tense. Thanks to my colleague and co-producer, Karin Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers and bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.